Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for life and leadership in Christ. My name is Tony and I'm your host. I'm so excited about this conversation today. It is with a gentleman by the name of Mike Napa and his latest writing, Reflections of a Grieving Soul, is a powerful testimony to how we encounter God in the grief. He talks about his wife, Amy, and her journal, and they kind of write this book together, Amy and Mike. It's a beautiful, just amazing love story that's full of grief and lament and also hope. So I know you're going to love this conversation. If you do, do me a favor, share it with a friend, maybe somebody who you know um, is grieving or dealing with grief. I think as we enter into the holiday season, it's such an important thing to be aware of. So now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Napa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited today to have author and uh, literary agent, Mike Napa. Mike, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on the show, Tony. It's, it's good to be here. I um, I want you to know that it's not very very often that I visit a website and I'm blown away by the layers of uh, of different steps, what we, what you affectionately call Napa land. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and I just, I love that about your personality. And so before we get into the micro, I like to start kind of macro and, and, and I would just wonder if, um, how would you describe the calling that God has placed on your life? Yeah, this is something that you really need to work through when you, uh, when you choose to pursue a career in writing, because some people will take, um, will decide that writing means to to just do whatever is on their mind and, and that's all they're going to do. Others will just try to do whatever uh, will sell, which is part of the business. You have to figure that into it. But um, there was a point in my career when I really had to sit down and say, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And uh, there's actually a process that I take newer writers through a whole, uh, it's kind of an exposure process where you have to look at who you are and why you do what you do and those kinds of things. And so when we come to, the idea of Napa Land and me uh, working through writing as a ministry and things that comes down to, I boiled it down to one statement. And that statement is, I am someone who will seek out uh, and reveal truth. Mm. This is my this is my goal. This is my purpose. Um, am I always great at it? No. Uh, but that's always what I'm doing. So if I'm working on a project, I have to look at it and say, is this just a vanity situation? Do I just want to talk about whatever I want to talk about, or is this actually an opportunity for me to serve the reader? Is this a way for me to seek out and reveal truth in a way that's helpful to the reader? So that's, that's kind of what I do. And that's why I do it is seek out and reveal truth, hopefully. Right. I, I, from everything that I have read and kind of looked at it, it, it seems like, um, a, a gut wrenching kind of open heart surgery type of truth <laughs> I mean, listen. I, 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 um, I read a lot as a podcaster, and I've I've never um, see someone who's so open with the hardest parts of life, just so plainly spoken. Um, how do you know? How do you know when something is the truth versus something is just an emotional reaction? and kind of your emotional mm-hmm. truth, right? Like how, how do you know when to preach right. through wounds or scars, as they say? It has to be um, grounded first in scripture for me. 
That's where the mm. basis is for everything. And um, I have a lot of feelings about things and opinions about everything. I mean, I'll probably tell you who, who the better football player is or whatever. And I, I can probably, <laughs> I can probably find some scripture to support that. But for me, it, it all has to filter through what I'm finding in the Bible and God's word. And that's kind of where this, uh, this book we're talking about today, Reflections for the Grieving Soul, began uh, all in just the scriptures that I was reading as I was going through this time of uh, great loss. My wife, 30 years, Amy. Um, and so I'm sure we'll get into that later, but that's, that's the basis for me. Uh, if it, if it filters through scripture and comes out clean, then that's probably truth. If it filters through scripture and comes out, um, a little messy, a little more like my, my opinion rather than, than the truth of scripture, then it's probably not true. Not well, always easy to make that distinction. Though, huh? Sure. Yeah. Well, that, that leads right into my next question, which is one of the things that we say around here a lot is that if you're not dedicated to your disciplines, you'll be destroyed by your distractions. And I guess that's true. huh? <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm always curious with someone who's a, who's a writer and an editor and an agent and like you, you live in this kind of world. What are your daily disciplines? One, to stay connected to the Lord and two, to, um, to stay fresh in your craft. Because I, I feel like writing is so much of a, a an ax that consistently has to be sharpened. How do you manage that tension? Yeah. You know, for writing, um, well, for me, my day usually begins with um, I wake up and I, I wake up in prayer and I, I spend time um, speaking to the Lord about what's going on and, and what I expect or my expectations are and hopes are for the day. And then I move into the scripture, uh, whatever it is I'm reading. When I was younger, I used to read the Bible. Uh, I used to, it was all about territory, right? I would say mm-hmm. I'm going to read the Bible in a year, I'm going to read the whole thing in a year. I'm going to read all through the Psalms in this month. Or I'm going to read one proverb every day. It was all about territory and conquering the territory. And that's good. That's healthy. But after a while, if you, after a while, that's just, um, it becomes a rote exercise rather than, than a meeting of, of the spirit. And so about uh, probably, what is this? What year are we in now? 2023? 20, 23, all, all so, year. All year long. So maybe 30 years ago, maybe 25, 30 years ago, I finally decided um, I'm just going to read the going to read scripture until God's done speaking to me about it. Uh, I will read the same passage over and over uh, every day for however long it takes until I'm done asking questions about it, until I'm done hearing from God about it and and see how that goes. So I don't cover as much territory as I used to in scripture, but I do. Um, continue to read that. I remember one time I got stuck in the story of the woman at the well. Uh, I, I got stuck in that for eight months. And every day for eight months, that was all I could read because I would read it and I would get to the end of it and I'd think, well, I have so many questions. I need to find out more about this. And then I'd read it again and I'd think, well, I think, I think this God is, God is telling me something about this. And I'd read it again and read it again and read it for eight months. And uh, before I was finally released from that one little short passage of the story of the woman at the well. And I thought, when I was done, I thought, I'm going to just write down some of my thoughts so I remember some of these things because I know I'm going to forget this sooner or later. Uh, and then I wrote down some ideas and thoughts. The next thing I knew, I had actually written an entire book. And so that actually became a book. Um, but that's a different story. After, after the scripture and prayer, um, there's a point in my life where I realized that, and I, I'm pretty dumb. Tony, I should have figured this out a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I realized that the whole the whole point of the life of Christ in me is not everything I can receive and everything that I can get from Christ. It's about um, what He has given me to serve, and this is the this is the philosophy of Napoleon Literary Agency, where I where I hold my literary agency. It's that we are not simply um, obligated to serve our reader, but we are privileged. This is what we get. Uh, this is the opportunity that we have. God has given us the opportunity to serve the reader. And so then when I'm working on a project or a book or whatever it is, I have to ask myself the question, how does this serve? How does this serve the reader? How does this serve the reader, both in the content and the, the form? And then I have to get down to the actually the, the nitty-gritty of the writing. How does this organization of the book serve the reader? How does this chapter serve the reader? How does this first sentence serve the reader? How does this word help the reader? And so this is what... Um, this is what motivates me each day is, first of all, the prayer and then the, the scripture and then asking the question, not only how will I serve, but who will I serve uh, with this and what I'm doing? I think if we can figure that out, um, we're going to have a lot better books. Yeah. I wish I had done more of this. Um, but this is what I have to do is I have to say, does this serve the reader? And if it doesn't, it's got to go. Uh, it's got to be cut. If it does serve the reader, then, then maybe it's worth staying in. But the the book uh, Reflections for a Grieving Soul is uh, it's it's very first of all it's very aesthetically pleasing like it's a beautiful book. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. That well, was a really talented. I, <laughs> I was a really talented art designer at, at Zondervan. So well, it, it's <laughs> I mean, yeah, um, I did it all, Tony. That was me. Well, I could, I I, I, I kind of guessed it wasn't you, but I also know that <laughs> it's an expression of your desire for the book, right? Like mm-hmm. so. Um, and, and one of the things that I wanted to start with is I I always love to read dedication pages and in this particular writing, um, this isn't necessarily a, a, a dedication page, but instead it's a, it's an, it's a journal entry, um, from Amy. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to read it for the audience and then I'm going to let you tell us why, uh, you started here. Um, It reads, uh, it may be the oddest thing I've ever done, looking for this journal and knowing I was looking for a place to write my thoughts and memories as a last way of capturing them. What do you choose when you're writing the last things? Pink, flowers, a Bible verse? Well, this is it. And here we go. Amy Napa, a journal entry, May 1, 2016. She would pass September 11th of that same year. Um, tell me about that. So, uh, Amy was diagnosed with cancer in August of 2015 and we went through all the chemotherapy. And there was a point where we actually thought she was cancer free. And that was, um, let's see. Yeah, it was February of 2016. And we, we were so happy and we were moving on, moving forward with our lives. And, um, we were supposed to go back after six months for a six-month checkup, but she got sick again. She was having trouble with this persistent cough again, and we didn't know what it was. We thought maybe it was um, pneumonia or something like that. We went to the doctor and found out the worst, uh, that in only two months uh, the cancer had not only come back, but it, had, it was worse than it was at the beginning. And that was at the end of April. 
the ironic thing is we had, um, I had just, I had, I was working on at the time I was supposed to be working on a series of three novels, suspense novels. And the first one had, had just come out, uh, earlier in April. And, um, I remember this, it was toward the end of April and I was staying up late. I had to stay up late. So Amy went to bed without me and I was staying up late doing some work. And when I finished, I just checked, I was checking something and I saw that, um, my novel had hit the bestseller list, the Christian bestseller list. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, I was very happy of course. And so, uh, but I didn't want to wake her up. I knew she was not feeling well. So I just printed a copy of it. Uh, the bestseller list, and I laid it on the table uh, so that she'd see it in the morning when she got up to go to work. And that next morning, uh, she got up and she went to the table, and I heard her scream, Mike Napa! And she came running down the stairs with the paper in her hand, and she kissed me all over my face and congratulated me and told me that we were going to go out that night to celebrate. Um, but she had to leave because she was going to go to the doctor before she went to work that day. Mm. And uh, she went to the doctor and then she texted me later in the morning and said, well, it's not good. And then by lunchtime, we knew that uh, the cancer had returned. And then our date that evening to celebrate, we had to actually go to the hospital and have some fluid removed uh, from her abdomen because cancer was causing fluid in her abdomen. And that weekend then, that Sunday, was May 1st. And we went to church uh, and we were talking. And on the way home, she said, here's what I want to do. I want to go to Target. I want to buy a journal. I just want to start writing some things down so that uh, there are things that have been said after I'm gone. So we went to Target and we bought her a green journal with dots on it. And I still have that journal. It's actually become one of my most precious possessions. And she went home and the first thing she wrote was that note that you just read. Um, what do you look for when you're writing, writing last things? And I thought uh, with this book, I wanted people to see a glimpse of who she was and the person, the, the beauty that was within her as well as without. And so I began this book with her first entry from that journal of, of her time before she died. So, uh, Her writing is sprinkled throughout the book, and it is an mm -hmm. absolute gift, including um, just the way that she, and I, I mean this in the kindest way, she kind of handled you. Um, yes, you did. <laughs> I, and I didn't know how else to say it, right? I, but I'm specifically referencing uh, the time, you know, as she was preparing to pass, when all the people wanted to come and mm -hmm. and and visit her, and and she she gave kind of those remarkable words, you know, basically her death is not about her at this point, and uh, and and it kind of led me to this question: is is um. It, it seemed as if that you and her were grieving um, mm -hmm. her death together before she had even passed. Yes. The medical term for that is called anticipatory grieving. Mm -hmm. And they, they explained that to us that we were going to feel this. And she was, um, you know, she had no fear of death. She was not afraid of dying. She didn't really enjoy all of the medical aspects of it, but um, she was, she was completely prepared. The only thing that she worried about was me. Uh, she worried about what I would do after she passed. And she, uh, she told me a few times, you know, Mike, if, if you're going to get through this, you have to actually go through it. You can't shortcut it. You can't go around it. You have to just go 
through it. And the thing you're talking about there was there was a point where she was really, I mean, her, her health was failing and we knew the end was coming. And uh, she had been an influence on so many people, both personally and through her work and ministry. And people were coming out of the woodwork. I mean, they were coming from all over the world asking for time with her before she passed. And it was just, at one point, it was just too much for me. There were so many people who wanted to pack in time with her. And she was in such poor health that she was sleeping a lot and only away, able to be awake for 10, 15 minutes at a time. And finally, one day I was looking at it and I was like, honey, you know what? I'm just going to tell everybody, no, it's too late. And I'll tell them that, you know, they love her. They love you, but they're not coming. And she, and she handled me, as you said. She just said, Mike, and she's sitting at the table and she's real quiet. She said, Mike, here's the thing. Um, we have to remember that my death is not about me. And I'm thinking, are you freaking kidding me? Of course it's about you. But she was absolutely serious. And she said, my death is not about me. These people, they need closure and we need to give it to them. So uh, if anybody wants to come, you make time for them to come. Just for my sake, don't have them all come at once. So I put aside my little annoyances and I made a schedule and I scheduled people to come and they would come and they would stay for 15 minutes and they would weep with her and she would end up actually comforting them most often. Um, and then, uh, but everyone, everyone had a chance uh, except for one or two. And in the end the, they had to call her instead of actually come visit in the hospice system. But she was uh, a remarkable woman. I was, I tell people that I was married for 30 years and I always have to clarify that. Uh, it's not just that I was married for 30 years. I was happily married for 30 mm. years. Amy and I, we just got along and we were, uh, we were, we fit, we fit together. And so losing her, uh, was not just, not just losing my wife. It was losing a, a, a enormous part of who I am and who I still am. So one of the things that, um, that I appreciate is that just the intimacy that you and her share in the writing, uh, uh, that takes place in the book. Um, on September 7th, 2016, you wrote a letter to your wife and I'm just going to read the first paragraph um, (laughs) because it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's worth the read and you should just pick up the book and read it. But it, it says this, uh, dear Amy, I'm sitting here watching you struggle to breathe hearing the nurse and the doctor say you will die soon. Surprised that I have any more tears left within me. Wishing I could do something, anything to make you happy one more time. What did writing this letter, what would, what would come four days before her passing, um, what did this letter do for you as you wrote it? Yeah, there was um, that moment during that last week of her life, and uh, they we saw her. She was in a coma during the last uh, eight days, and we saw her failing. And the doctors came to me one day, and they said, well, it could be any time. could be tonight. could be tomorrow. It probably won't be longer than two or three days. And I thought, you know, there are so many things um, that I'm grateful for, for this woman. And I was... Uh, you know, no, there's it's, there's nothing in that letter that I didn't say to her over the course of 30 years. There's nothing in there that, that was a secret. But I felt like it was important for me to put it all down in writing um, so that I could tell it to her at least one more time before she passed. 
And I waited. I was, I wrote it on September 7th. They told me that she might die that night. And I waited and I thought, um, I was just scared to say it because I knew that once I said it, that would mean the end was near. Hmm. The end was imminent. And, uh, I waited the next day, uh, and I didn't read it to her then. And I got all the way to September 10th and to the evening of September 10th. There was a point where she and I were just all by ourselves. And I thought, well, I think it's now or never. And she was, um, she was in a coma. I don't know if she heard it or not, Tony. I, I have no idea. Maybe she heard it. Maybe she didn't. But it was good for me to speak it out loud to her. And so I, I read this letter to her that just basically said, thank you. Thank you for who you have been, who you are, and who you will continue to be in, for, in my life. And I put it in the book because um, it's actually at the end of the book. It's kind of the last thing in the book. And I, I thought about whether or not it belonged in there. And I finally put it in there because I realized there are a lot of people who have told me, I wish I had said this. I wish I had done that. I wish there were, there were so many regrets that they had after losing someone close to them. And I thought, well, you know what? Um, you can't predict whether or not you can say what you want to say, but you can always say what you want to say. And so uh, even after someone is gone, you can sit down and say, this is what you meant to me. And I believe that somewhere in eternity, they will, they will acknowledge that they'll, they'll be responsive to that. And even if they aren't, it's good for you to clarify how you felt about that person and the things that were meaningful to you about that person. And some people have said, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do that. So this letter is in there for you, not so because I want you to imitate me and I'm so great, blah, 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 but because this is kind of a model you can use. You can say, this is what I want to talk about when I'm talking about this person who, who has loved me. And here's that example that you can see maybe what it's like. So, um, yeah, you know, I will say they edited my letter a bit because I was a little more explicit about some of our <laughs> marital relations, as sure, you would say. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, but you will get the idea. Yeah. And I hope that this is something that helps people to um, sit down and write their own letters. They'll say, I have loved this person. And whether or not they hear this from me, I want to express it. I want to express it for no one else but for myself so that I remember why this person was meaningful to me. Hey guys, just pause this conversation with Mike to remind you to check out Follow to Lead Coaching. Follow the number two leadcoaching.com. It's my coaching and strategic planning website. If you are a Christian business owner, a Christian executive who wants to live their life of integrity, a fully integrated life, I would love to walk with you on this journey. So you can check me out by going to follow the number two leadcoaching.com or hit me in the DMs. I would love to walk alongside you as you plan for 2024. Whatever the Lord has in store for you, we want to walk through together. So as always, I'm easy to find. Follow the number two leadcoaching.com. Now let's finish up this conversation with Mike. It's, um, it's something I'm a big proponent of. Whenever I do grief counseling or just pastoral counseling about broken relationships or strained relationships or grieving relationships, I almost always recommend that the person write a letter a physical pen to paper because there is a release yep. in that process that I think you're, you're spot on about. Um, I, I'm curious. You know, Amy, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Amy did that for me too. She wrote uh, in her green journal that she picked out, she wrote letters to all of us. She actually wrote me a couple of letters that I treasure uh, that she, she wrote down the things that she uh, 
um, loved about me and, and the person I had been in her life. And that's meaningful to me now after she's gone. And she wrote, before she died, we have two grandchildren, and she wrote um, 18 years worth of birthday cards for each of them. Wow. So that every year on their birthday, they get a new a new card from their Mimi uh, that's just saying, uh, I loved you and I still love you and here's what I'm thinking of you, about you. And she wrote a, a graduation card so that when those children graduate, they'll get a graduation card from their grandmother. And then uh, she wrote uh, wedding cards for each of them. So on their wedding days, they'll have cards. So this is uh, this kind of thing down in, in, in permanent form written uh, in her own handwriting is, is something important. And actually, I have a tattoo right here of uh, Psalm 16.8 that um, after she died, that was her favorite scripture. Uh, I've set the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And that just described who she was before illness and after illness and all the way up to her death. And I took that handwriting of hers out of her journal and put it on my arm. And so this kind of thing is uh, valuable, has value. It's the kind of thing that has meaning long after someone's gone. The whole process of uh, anticipatory grief of of losing her and now of then writing about grief for the world, it, it has to really illustrate a whole nother side of God that many of us don't get to see. And so I, I would be like curious to hear what you learned from God or about God, or um, maybe even just divine agency. If we want to go that broad uh, in the process of this journey. Well, so I didn't originally write this book for publication. Uh, I, I wrote it uh, mostly for myself. I was, um, in the time after Amy died, there was about two weeks between her death and her funeral. And in that time, I was surrounded by just this great cloud of, of friends and people and family who supported me and loved me and held me up and uh, just were so kind. And we had the funeral and about 400 people showed up and we just, it was a beautiful celebration of her life. And then the next day, all of those people went back to their own lives. They went back to, uh, you know, their work and their family. And that was the right, that was appropriate thing for them to do. But what that meant was I was left uh, all alone to suddenly try to navigate through this new normal that I had not expected and had, had no idea how to deal with. And so at one point, I finally I just went onto Facebook with my friends and I said, hey, I'm struggling. Uh, so what I want you to do is I want you to send me any scripture that you turn to during a difficult time, uh, anything that you like and that helps you and send that to me. And they did. They sent me dozens and dozens of scriptures. And Amy had left me some scriptures in her journal and I had my own favorites and I put them all, I printed them all out and I cut them up and I, I put them on three by five cards. And I said, I'm going to read one of these cards every day for 100 days just to just because that's what I'm going to do. And I would get up in the morning and I would read the card first thing in the morning. And then I would read it again in the mid morning when I was weeping and I would read it in the afternoon. And again, in the evening, I'd read it as, I'd read as many times as I needed to eight, 10, 12 times a day. And I did this every day with a new card. And about nine months later, I realized, um, Oh, I was supposed to stop after 100 days, but I was still reading these, these cards and these scriptures. And in fact, I kept reading for several years and I still have those cards right next. I keep them right next to my bed. Here's proof. See, ta-da. And I, um, I, I don't read them every day now, but I still read them probably two, three times a week. 
And as I was doing that, because I had no one else to talk to, um, I would just start writing some of my thoughts and prayers and uh, sorrows out to God uh, for my own sake, for myself. And um, that eventually then became the basis for the manuscript. Those hundred scriptures and, and my reflections on those scriptures became the basis for the manuscript for the book, Reflections for the Grieving Soul. I think when we talk about God and his agency and things that happen with grief, we have to remember two things. Um, first of all, grief is an expression of love. We, we don't grieve that which we do not love. And so if we are grieving deeply, it's because we have loved deeply. And that's a privilege to have loved like that. There's a cost to it, obviously, yeah. that we pay in grief. But uh, the reason we have this grief is because we have great love. The second thing we need to remember about grief is that grief is actually an imitation of God and the character of God. The first time that grief is mentioned in Scripture is Genesis 6, uh, right before the flood. Uh, and God is looking at the wickedness of man and says God has God grieved in his heart uh, about the wickedness of man. If we that's that grief there is a, is attributed to Yahweh, to God the Father. Uh, if we then Fast forward into the New Testament, we find Jesus in the night before his crucifixion. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, my soul is crushed with grief. So this is attributed to God the Son um, experiencing grief. And then we move into the letters of the Apostle Paul. And Paul tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, which is uh, uh, telling us that the Holy Spirit also can experience grief, the third person of the Trinity. So when I look at the idea of grief, scripturally, um, I see that God experiences grief in, in the entirety of his being in all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so he experiences that in a way that is eternal and much more intimate and, and raw than we can even relate to. That tells me that, first of all, God can be trusted with, with my clumsy grief and that he can be trusted with it because he understands it in the eternal perspective, he can be trusted with, with my temporary grief as much as I want, as often as I want, for as long as I want. Even if I want to throw it at him for the rest of my life, um, this is okay. Because God is a griever. Yeah. And when I grieve authentically, when I grieve well, not when I grieve with bitterness or harshness or intent to hurt, but if I can grieve authentically and grieve well, then I'm actually imitating the character of God. And this is something that he will he will enter into, uh, and that he will participate in. Right now, there are a lot of leaders who are listening, um, and they're type A personalities, and so they're they're constantly on the go, but yet their world is surrounded by people, and um, people grieve differently, and they are not sure what to do with those feelings. And if you're talking to a leader who has someone either in their family or their organization who's grieving. What wisdom do you have for them on how to handle someone else's grief? Yeah, and this is something that particularly is, is difficult for a type A personality, for that guy who's, who's really driven and, and ready to go, or that woman who wants to accomplish things. Because the tendency for the type A personality, and really for a lot of us, is to fix the problem. Yeah. Right? We see a problem, we find the solution, we fix it. And this works well in business. Uh, it works well in programs and, and events and, and administration. It does not work well with people. 
when you're dealing with someone who has experienced grief, that person doesn't need to be fixed. Uh, they don't need to be lectured. Um, they don't need to be told that everything's going to be all right in the end. We know everything's all right. And I mean, my wife now is in a place where there is no pain, where yeah. she can be in, in rest and joy and, and boy, I can't wait to be there with her. Um, but knowing that doesn't take away the grief that I feel, right? Because I don't grieve that she died. I grieve that I am without her. Mm. Right? So um, if you are a pastor or a leader and you're, you're wanting to help someone with uh, this grief, it's going to take more than fixing the problem. Uh, it's actually going to take time. What I needed most, and I think what people need most, is not uh, not to be made cheerful again, but I need someone who's willing to sit next to me while I cry. On the day before Amy died, on September 10th, maybe September 9th, uh, I was, there was, Amy and I had a lot of time alone in that room, uh, in that hospital room. And as she's dying, the, you know, let's be honest, it's not a pleasant smell and there's tubes and noises going on and everybody around you is dying. You're in a hospice place. And I remember I was sitting there and um, it was a Friday so it would have been two days before she died. It was a Friday, and I was sitting there in the room, and I looked up, and all of a sudden, my pastor was standing in the doorway. You know, my pastor is a, he's a pastor of a large church, about a thousand people. He's a busy man. He also has a business on the side. He keeps things going. Um, for him, trying to get a half-hour meeting with this guy is like you got to plan it a month in advance, maybe maybe two months, right? But all of a sudden, he's standing there uh, at the doorway. And I, I'm like, oh, Greg, uh, you know, come in. But do you want to wear a mask? Because it doesn't smell good in here. And he's like, no, no, no. And he came in and he sat down and he didn't tell me all the good things about what was happening and how I should look forward to her being in glory. He just sat there. And he sat with me for four hours uh, on a Friday afternoon just sitting there. And we talked and sometimes we talked about Amy and sometimes I cried and, mm. you know, sometimes he hugged me and other times we just sat there and we talked football or we talked um, whatever's going on. Or, and the important thing to me that day was not anything he said. I couldn't even tell you what he said. The important thing to me was that he sat next to me for four, maybe four and a half hours when I, when I just needed someone to sit next to me. This is hard for someone who's a type A personality because it means you have to love uh, the person more than you love your time. You have to love uh, the griever more than you love accomplishments, getting something done, checking things off your list. You have to be willing to someone who's just going to sit there. And this is what I needed most after the days that Amy passed. I remember I am, um, you know, I'm a writer. I tend to be more introverted. I'm comfortable just sitting in my basement with all the doors and windows closed. And I was several months in and a friend of mine, Eddie, he called me and he said, like, he's like, look, Mike, I know that you, you just need to be alone sometimes, but I'm not going to let you just sit in your house and miss Amy. It's fine that you miss Amy, but here's what we're going to do. Once a month, we're going to go to the movies. We're going to go get lunch. We're going to go to the movies. So here's the first date we're going. And you know, that's what we're going to do. And so we started going to the movies once a month. And uh, you know what, Tony? It's been seven years now, and Eddie and I still go to the movies once a month. We just wow. get together because sometimes I talk about Amy, sometimes I don't. Uh, but he's always available just to be near me. 
I have another friend, Kevin. He was actually the best man at my wedding. And, um, you know, you were talking earlier about how this week was the anniversary of Amy's death on September 11th. He has decided that I will never be alone on September 11th, ever. And so he doesn't even ask me uh, if he can come out or if he, if this time is appropriate or anything like that. I always just get an, an email or a text from him a few weeks before September, and he'll say, here's my flight plan. I'm coming in. I'm just going to rent a car. I'll meet you at your house at this time. And then he stays, and he's here. He, he's always here on September 11th, whether I want him to be or not. Um, of course, I want him to be, right? And then he'll make me, he'll sit next to me and let me cry, but then he'll also say, okay, now let's go do something fun. So we'll go hit golf balls, or we'll uh, go to the movies, or we'll, we'll throw axes, or whatever we can think of. And so now I have this um, experience when September 11th is, is nearing, I have, I have that anticipatory grief again of, oh, I'm going to remember this awful mm-hmm. time. But I also have, uh, I look forward to it a little bit because I know Kevin's going to be sitting next to me. And um, this is what you need. So if you really want to help someone who's going to grieve, you better be willing to give up your time. um, And you better be willing to make that a priority uh, because that's what they need is someone to sit next to them, someone to cry. That's beautiful. Um, Wow. I have so many other questions that we're not going to get to today. Uh, (laughs) But I I have one more question for you that I, I definitely want to ask. Um, before I do that, though, I know that my podcast family is going to want to find you all over the interwebs. Um, I I know you're on LinkedIn and, and Facebook, but where is the best place to dive into Napa Land? Yeah, easiest way to do it is just go to NapaLand.com uh, and you'll find all the different things that I'm doing. And there's a contact page and that'll go directly to me. You can also... Um, if you're talking specifically about grief or, or grieving, you can go to a website called thegrievingsoul.com. And there's a, a contact page on there where you can send me an email and it goes directly to, uh, also comes directly to me. So, but either those, napaland.com or thegrievingsoul.com. Or honestly, you can just Google my name, Mike Napa, in the Google search engine will pull up whatever you need. Yeah, really easy to find, actually, which as somebody who has to Google a lot of authors, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, okay. The, the last question I always love to ask people is an advice question. Um, except I'm going to ask you to go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, except I get to name the season of life that you're in. All right. And what I want to do is I want to take you back to the day before your wedding day. Mm-hmm. Um, 30 some odd years ago, if you could pull up a chair with that younger version of yourself, sit knee to knee with him, hold his hands and look him in the eye. What's the one thing that you're going to tell him about the journey he's about to go on? Yeah, I've thought about that sometimes because um, Amy and I were married 30 years, almost 30 years. She died just a few weeks before our 30th anniversary. And, um, I have wondered if I knew, if I knew I was only going to get 30 years, if they had sent, come to me and said, Mike, you're going to get 30 years with this woman and then it's over, would I have still done it? And I'm like, yep, I would have said 30 years is plenty. Now, it didn't turn out to be as much as I wanted. But mm. if I were to sit down with that guy, um, I think I would just tell him to enjoy it. Every moment matters. Uh, you learn that as you, as you lose someone. You learn that every moment you spent um, – 
makes a difference. There was a point when Amy was uh, going through her illness, and at one point she kind of slipped into a delirium for about three days where she she had trouble uh, distinguishing between reality and dreaming, and it was a really difficult time for all of us because uh, for her, she was wonderful. She was kind and loving, and but she just couldn't, she couldn't separate um, hallucination from reality as part of something was going wrong with her treatment. And that happened on our 29th anniversary. One of the three days was our 29th hmm. wedding anniversary. And on that day, I was talking to her and I asked her her name and she, she could remember her maiden name, but she couldn't remember her married name. And um, she could remember that she was married to, to Mike Napa, but she didn't recognize me as her husband. And there was a point where I was talking to her and I was just trying to talk to her. And I said, honey, you know, uh, so are you married? And she said, yes. And I said, well, what's your husband's name? And she said, Mike Napa. And I said, well, does he love you? Just kind of was off the cuff. And she immediately answered, yes, very much. And I thought um, that didn't come out of, there was no hesitation. That didn't come out of, of because I had questioned her or problem is because of every moment I'd spent up to that time uh, telling her I loved her. When we got married, um, I would begin her every day. She would wake up and I would tell her I loved her. And uh, every night before she went to bed, I would tell her I loved her. And I'd tell her I loved her half a dozen times during the day, whenever it came up, whenever I could think of it. If I called her, if I emailed her, if I texted her, uh, anything. There was never a day that went by that I didn't tell her several times that I loved her. And, you know, she did the same for me. But those moments would seem to be forgettable until you hit that time where you realize every moment matters. Yeah. And if I had not seeded her life with all of those millions of moments telling her I loved her, what would her response have been when I asked her at that critical moment, does he love you? Would you have said, well, I think he does or seems to. Or would you have said, I'm not sure. Um, this is what I would tell that young me is to say, to remember every single moment matters. And this is what you'll learn when you hit the moment where you have to experience grief for a long extended period of time. That, that grief will teach you to take advantage of every moment. Honestly, Tony, right now I tell every, everybody I love them. I think they drive them nuts. I'm, you know, at a meeting at church, I walk out of the room and I love you guys. I, I see my son. Every time I see him, I love you. I see, um, uh, you know, a friend, we meet for coffee before we leave. I love you. You know, every time I go to the movies with Eddie, I'm like, I love you. And it's just um, because I know every moment matters. And when I'm done, uh, they're not going to say Mike Napa was this great person or Mike Napa wrote a lot of books. What they're going to say about me was Mike Napa loved well. And that's how I want to be remembered as someone who loved well, mm. um, because that's that's what Amy taught me. Mike, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your heart and your vulnerability. Um, I would love to have you back on again as you continue to write and uh, share you your stories. And I just deeply appreciate it. Anytime, man. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you for the work that you do uh, to help leaders. What a great conversation with Mike. I love his heart. I love and appreciate this love story between him and Amy. And I really appreciate the way that she was so intentional about using her death for what really matters. I love the way she talks about making every moment matter. It's a life goal for me. I'm sure for you as well. 
Well, guys, that's our podcast for today. So thankful for you, for the opportunity to connect, for what it means to be on this journey together. And as always, if there's anything I can do to help you, I'm embarrassingly easy to find. At TWMilt on all the socials. Follow the number two leadcoaching.com. And remember, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.